This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Hello, welcome to Drilled. This is Amy Westervelt. I'm here today with a bit of an update to the history we chronicled in season three, where we looked at the last hundred or so years of fossil fuel propaganda. A new study from Harvard researchers Jeffrey Suprin and Naomi Oreskes highlights how ExxonMobil in particular has used language both to undermine climate action and to push the idea that it's an individual consumer problem, not anything to do with them or the systems they helped to create and continue to profit from. Lead researcher Jeffrey Suprin joined me to talk through the study's findings and what they mean for climate action more broadly and what they might mean for the two dozen or so climate cases making their way through the courts at the moment. That conversation coming up after this quick break. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less and we all know it's not going to (laughs) happen but one thing i have been able to stick to and you can too is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing earth breeze i know you're thinking laundry is not so fun those huge heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount getting goo all over the place it's annoying earth breeze eco sheets totally changed the game Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean, it smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes, so it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again thanks to EarthBreeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties, and you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus, shipping is always free, and Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry 
and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 40, 40. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. So basically, if you if you run a do some code to say what words appear, I think within plus or minus five words of the words climate change and global warming, there is literally no word or phrase that is more common than risk or risks. So it basically became their their watchword throughout throughout the two thousands. And likewise, in terms of the the words that individualize responsibility, all the same key words pop up regarding meeting the energy demand of consumers, you know, mm-hmm. meeting the needs, all these kinds of words. Did you find that, you know, the word risk was used to, in a way, to introduce doubt? Like, it's a risk, but it's right. not a certainty. Was it that right. kind of framing or how how is it being used? Yeah, right. So so essentially, <laughs> they describe, they talk about climate risk, risks, you know, long-term risk, potential risks, potential long-term risks, all permutations on the word risk. And our interpretation is that ExxonMobil used risk just as they have used other rhetorical cousins like uncertainty and more research and sound science, essentially the same intention of of what's sometimes called strategic ambiguity. Um, It's exactly what the tobacco industry did, which is to shift the conversation from um, semantics, from concepts of reality to concepts of, of risk. And it's a very clever trick because you inject uncertainty into the narrative, into the discourse about climate change, um, while superficially not appearing to do so. So essentially, rather than correcting the record and acknowledging how they previously promoted doubt, they just changed the subject a little bit. You know, a risk is something that may or may not happen. And by characterizing climate change as a risk, they implicitly implied that it was not a reality even after clearly climate scientists had demonstrated that it was it was happening, that mm-hmm. it is happening. And yeah, the thing that I think really gives us confidence in the use of this this rhetorical tool is that it exactly mirrors the tobacco industry strategy. They did exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. both for, for as a public relations tactics and also as a as a legal defense one. That's interesting. So can you talk a little bit about that part, how you mapped this to what the tobacco industry was doing as well. Sure. 
Yeah, well, the, the way it first came up was um, running these so-called corpus comparison algorithms. So looking at, you know, what terms appear over or underused in one set of documents compared to another. And this term risk and risks started jumping out very early to us. And I just happened to know that Robert Proctor, who's a tobacco historian, had written quite extensively about the use of risk as what he calls a legal having it both ways. So essentially, you know, an admission strong enough to ward off accusations of, of failing to warn the public, but at the same time weak enough to kind of exculpate them from charges of, of having, having just marketed this deadly product. And it was that parallel that I noticed with the word risk that really started to encourage me to latch on to, you know, what other parallels, what might we be seeing? And so it was in the process of looking at other terms and other discourses that are constructed that we started to realize they were also promoting this shift of responsibility away from the company and onto consumers by publicly fixating on consumer energy demand rather than the fossil fuels that the company supplies. And in that regard too, I then came across another study from just a few years ago that really in detail laid out exactly how the tobacco industry had done this too. In the case of the tobacco industry, they played a two-pronged approach where in public, they used so-called demand as liberty. And in litigation and defense against lawsuits, they flipped it, flipped the script and basically talked about demand as blame. And what we've essentially found is ExxonMobil have done exactly the same thing in a slightly different way. The nuances are slightly different, but, but the overall pattern is the same, which is that demand is used in public to very subtly put the uh, responsibility on the shoulders of the public. Right. And then when it comes to defending itself in court, the gloves will come off a little bit and they'll really double down on that demanders blame rhetoric. So, mm -hmm. so this is really exciting. This is interesting to us because not only are the existing patterns evident, but it also, these insights allow us to begin to um, foresee how their defense against litigation and activism is going to expand in, in the coming years. So we're just starting to see the first early warning signs of that strategy, that that blame game that they're playing. That was actually like a big part of um, the decision in San Francisco. Exactly. When, um, yeah. Judge Elsup's ruling, like he kind of talked about that. It's like, well, sure, you know, and that was very much the argument that was being made, too, is that, you know, hey, we're just fulfilling a right. demand. Without us, the right. Industrial Revolution wouldn't have happened. All of this right. kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, so so that's actually, I mean, I we, we point this out in the paper that the reason Judge Alsop made that decision was very much, you know, in response to the argument being made by Chevron's mm -hmm. lawyer in defense of, of Exxon and other companies, where mm -hmm. he very explicitly said, it's not production that is causing greenhouse gas emissions. It's consumers, it's the demand, it's, quote, it's the way that people are living their lives. Yeah, yeah. Correct. And, yes. you know, of course, we're the first to acknowledge that demand is a legitimate part of the climate problem and its solution. But it's mm -hmm. not the only part. And it's not actually the business focus of ExxonMobil, which is a supplier company. Right. So right. there's this very intriguing, <laughs> there's this very that intriguing and, and convenient. I came across a few years ago the fact that BP had first promoted the concept of a carbon footprint in 2004 mm -hmm. to 2006. Mm -hmm. And so that, you yeah. know, I think has really helped to kind of 
anecdotally demonstrates the role of the fossil fuel industry in promoting these individualized responsibility narratives. But Mm -hmm. what we think we're doing for the first time with this work is to actually systematically and empirically prove, in this case, ExxonMobil's role in encouraging and embodying those those discourses. It's not to say, you know, of course, that ExxonMobil has done this alone. It's it's been right. part of a a ma- yeah, a massive individualization effort by the fossil fuel industry seemingly writ large and also just industries in general that industry. promote and it's so subtle. Like, you know, Naomi and I analyzed these advertorials previously from, you know, through the lens of of analyzing explicit doubts and climate denial. Mm-hmm. And it basically escaped our notice that there was this systematic usage usage of 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 terms and topics to to yeah to 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 um shift responsibility away from the company but for me that's what makes it all the more important because we're yes. starting to be able to flag genuinely insidious and subtle propaganda that is shifting the way everyone thinks about this whether they realize right. it or not it sort of like weaponizes American identity in a way too. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. That's right. It, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. We we briefly touch on in, near the end of the paper how, you know, it was it was it's too it's too massive of a separate thing to go into the details of how sociologically that sort of quote unquote rugged individualism has mm-hmm. has entrenched itself in American culture and ideology, but it really has. And so yeah. we briefly note that what it really seems like ExxonMobil did was to tap into that individualizing of society and risk that has been happening over the last few decades and really bring it to bear on climate change. So yeah, it's one piece of the puzzle and we think it's an important one because it's the first definitive proof of these kinds of subtle strategies, which by the way, I think you would enjoy. We include a quote in here from Herb Schmertz where, I don't know if you saw it, but yeah, yeah, where, where, where he specifically in his book says he calls the first guiding principle of um, he says the first guiding principle of public affairs is to quote unquote quote grab the good words and stick your opponents with the bad ones and he talks <laughs> and, he, and he specifically talks about the the power of I think he calls it semantic infiltration yes. whereby he says it's the process whereby language does the dirty work of politics mm-hmm. and that is exactly what we're seeing here that's really yeah. interesting well, because, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I do you see it all the time that like the industry really tries to position itself as like the only demand side only industry in the world. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 That's right. It's the it's the only it's the only problem and the only industry where the only solutions are demand side. There is nothing yeah. to be done on the supply yeah. side. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Framed in like, the context of anything else, it would sound ridiculous, right? Yeah, it's totally ridiculous. And you see just how much bullshit it is when you look at what yeah. they did, you know, in the 80s when there was no longer a sort of restricted supply problem, but Americans right. had gotten really good at energy efficiency. I found all these old Chevron shareholder magazines where mm. they were really freaking out about the fact that okay, we have more supply now, but demand is remaining flat because people have gotten so good at conserving energy. They were like, what are we going to do to get demand yeah. back up? And they, they artificially wow, dropped prices. 
Whenever there's a glut yeah. of some kind, they fiddle with the pricing to drive demand. Yeah. Or, I mean, even if you look at what's happening with the natural gas glut and the plastic stuff, you know, they right. just exactly. found another exactly. market for it. And also just more at the at the human scale that I think people mm-hmm. can relate to. You know, um, I mean, I've been... I've I've given many talks where some guy at the back has stood up and said I'm a hypocrite because my shoes contain, you know, mm-hmm. rubber or something. Right. And and those accusations of hypocrisy leveled at climate academics and activists alike who criticize yes. the fossil fuel industry. That's that's the gro- the ground level manifestation of this this brainwashing frankly. Yes. Um, um yeah, and and so I think it kind of it, it that's that's the really profound thing about this that it it manifests itself at all scales and all segments of society, whether it be the way scholars and you know scientists think about the kinds of problems they're asking, to the kind of stories journalists write. You know, and mm-hmm. it's only really like you and Emily and a few others who are kind of countering that now. And whether it be, you know, the average Joe who, when you bring up climate change, the number one thing they think about is changing their light bulbs and stuff. Right. And, right. Um, that came up yeah. even with the crab fishermen that uh, wound yeah. up suing the oil companies, even the ones. Actually, that was an interesting case because a lot of them didn't and still don't believe that humans contribute to climate change. But their whole thing was yeah. that the companies had information that they were using to make their companies more resilient to climate right. change um, and that they were keeping that information and that it really doesn't matter what causes climate change, that they were, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were covering it up. But the even the ones who who were more, you know, like actually like, yes, think that climate change is real and that we need to do something about it and all of that kind of stuff. They were actually slower to join that suit because they were like, but I'm a hypocrite because I drive a big boat that burns diesel. Wow. Yes. It was crazy to me. I was like, wow, the people who are actual climate deniers. <laughs> are yeah, joining yeah. this suit and the people who actually yeah. believe that we need to act on climate are the ones dragging their feet because this hypocrisy thing is so strong. That's the thing that if you're really focused on your own sense of guilt and, and responsibility, you yeah. become hamstrung from acting on what you know in order to hold the systemic failures to account that are mm-hmm. locking us into this fossil fuel status quo society that's how powerful it is so like yes it's subtle but that you're totally right that i think that's what makes it so much more powerful yeah Um, yeah. and especially because it like plays into all of these sort of societal structures too it's like that much more effective right right Um, yeah well exactly that was and is the really clever thing about well, now we found the strategies that both tobacco and fossil fuels are using, which is mm-hmm. that they cannot be pointed to so clearly, so blatantly as, right. you know, lying or falsehoods or anything like that, because they basically draw on common and often correct parlance, you know, of journalists and academics and the public. It's just they're kind of spinning these words in a in a confusing way. But one other thing just to flag out of interest mm-hmm. is that we actually also likewise find sets of of distinctive terms that um together communicate various other discourses of delay as we call them so um mm-hmm. you know we we find these systematic usages of of terms that together for example constitute greenwashing that constitute um what we call fossil fuel solutionism or that promote concepts of energy poverty and you know things yes. like that and 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 these all 
weave together, you know, to construct this fossil fuel savior frame mm-hmm. that we that we identify. But but yeah, I thought I, I really felt like the risk and responsibility parts are the ones that haven't been kind of hammered, like people that hasn't quite been kind of encapsulated properly yet. So that's why we kind of focus on that. I think that's super interesting. Well, I have this like long running obsession with the idea that like um, the sort of very um, entrenched personal responsibility narrative is sort of like at the root of every problem in the U.S. Yeah. Basically, we're constantly asking individuals to solve systemic problems just with their that's own, right. usually consumer choices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the thing that kills me, too, is that individual action doesn't even get painted as yeah. political action or activism right. or whatever. It's 100 percent right. stuff you buy. Right. Yeah, 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 and 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 we, yeah, yeah, we we that's that's our concluding point in the paper actually that mm-hmm. we we quote another scholar who who kind of wrote about this in a more anecdotal way way back like in two thousand and one he calls it the narrowing of our environmental imagination you know to mm. to, to consumers first and citizens second and and that's yes. our bottom line really that that's what's happened here and you're absolutely right the other thing just to to flag with the the hypocrite thing is mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. someone called Jen Schneider she wrote a book called Under mm-hmm. Pressure mm-hmm. and and we found that useful in doing this work because that book mm. it's a group of rhetoricians you know academics uh, looking at specifically coal industry rhetoric and oh, we draw on some of their terminology for for naming these discourses that we identify one of their terms that we don't actually use because we classify it under individualized responsibility, but I think is really great is they talk about the hypocrite's trap. That's their name mm-hmm. for, for for that rhetoric of, of hypocrisy. I'm just mentioning that because that I think that's quite a cool book and one of the only ones I've seen that also takes the time to to identify and name these things because that's important. You know, just developing this typology, just putting it out there. Yeah. Um, well, just making yeah. it clear that it's not like. I think there's this thing that happens where people think that it is some kind of natural evolution or like organically created, you know, identity or whatever. And it's like, no, this was this was like really intense. This was engineered and engineered. And I think once people know that, then they can evaluate it in that context and form opinions that way (laughs) as opposed to just sort of. That's right buying that's the framing right. that they're handed yeah. that's that's kind of the what we want what what we hope people will take from this study That's it for today. Big thanks to Jeffrey Supran for joining us. You can find a link to the full study in the show notes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.